Good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and open to Psalm 14. I'd encourage you to follow along. It's, it's always helpful to see the text in front of you as we study. Years ago, one of the late night talk shows used to occasionally feature a segment they would call Stupid Human Tricks. Some of you may remember those. I saw some people who could whistle two tunes at the same time. Saw someone else who could actually sing two different notes at once. So this morning, I'm going to preach on two psalms at the same time in one sermon. It's going to be awesome. Now, I could do this with uh, recordings and vocal overdubs, but I won't. I'm going to do it all live. The passage is actually going to make it easy for me, though, this morning. Our psalm is, as I said, Psalm 14. Later, I would encourage you to flip over and compare it to Psalm 53. And what you'll discover is that these two psalms are essentially identical. Other than a couple of wording changes and some changes in the way that that what are verses 5 and 6 here in Psalm 14 are phrased over in Psalm 53. Other than that, these are identical psalms, which raises a question. Why are there two psalms in our book of psalms in the Scripture that are basically identical? Both of them written by King David. Did he just, you know, in his later years in life, develop Alzheimer's and forget that he wrote Psalm 14 and he wrote Psalm 53? You know, it sounds kind of familiar, but everything's new as well. It's all. Um, or did the editors of the Psalm book, as they were bringing in David's Psalms and Solomon's Psalms and the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90, and Asaph's Psalms, and they're putting them all together. They just made a mistake. They ended up with an extra copy of, of David's Psalm, and it just kind of got stuck in there, and nobody noticed until a few years later, and they you know, failed to take it out. Obviously not. God in His Word doesn't waste space. He doesn't waste ink. God, when He puts something there twice, does it for a reason. God, when He puts something there twice, does it for a reason. See, whenever we repeat something, we repeat something for a purpose. And we repeat something for a purpose in order to get emphasis. We do something repeatedly to get emphasis because we have something important to say that we don't want people to miss. And so it is here. Psalm 14 has an important message that God wants us to hear. And so He repeats it. Psalm 14. Verse 1. Let me just follow along as I read this verse. The, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Again, you go over to Psalm 53 and it's the same as Psalm 14. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
Here in verse 1, we learn about the fool, and what we learn is that it is a fool who says in his heart, there is no God. An atheist, he says, is a fool. And that's strong language. It's strong language in English, it's strong language in Hebrew, and in any language, to call someone a fool. This word in Hebrew, Nabal, is a stubborn, rebellious fool. It's not suggesting in any way that the, this person is an, an imbecile who lacks normal intelligence. Rather, this person, this fool, often is someone who has a large number of letters after their name, indicating high levels of intelligence and academic achievement. But it says that this one who says there is no God is a fool because in order to do so, this person must deny what is an obvious reality. There is a Creator. There is a Creator God. I found it interesting a few years back, Pew Research did a, did a poll, did a study. It was in 2009. And despite 150 plus years of evolutionary theory being promoted, taught, indoctrinated, as it were, in, in the scientific community and academia, what they discovered was that over half of scientists in the United States still believe in God. Why? Quite frankly, because it only makes sense. Just like the, a great work of art, if we were to bring up here a great painting and put it up here, you see this beautiful work of art. What everybody understands, if there is a beautiful work of art, there is an artist who created it. So it is when, any, when we look at the beauty of the creation, when we look at the intricacy of creation, when we look at the order in creation, when we see the complexity in creation, it declares that there is a Creator. And we're going to see more of that next week as we look at Psalm 8. But just listen to a few well-known scientists who are in no way Christian. One said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Sir Frederick Hoyle, a British astrophysicist quite renowned, Paul Davies, another physicist, and uh, said this a few years ago. He said, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Neither of these ever came to to 
the conclusion that there is a Creator God and the God we know, but both of them realize there has to be something, someone, some intellect, some designer behind it all because it can't simply design itself. Interesting. The book of Romans describes people like this and notice, notes that they are people who must suppress the truth. They must push down the truth. Listen as I read from Romans 1. Just a few verses. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, push down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. Paul says in many words what David said in a few. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The truth is obvious, but they will not accept it. And so despite claims to be wise, they have become fools. Sir Arthur Keith, the man who wrote the forward to the 100th anniversary edition of Darwin's Origin of the Species said this, Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation. And that's unthinkable. <laughs> you see, it's not that evolution and atheism is provable or even desirable as far as, as the evidence, it's simply the fact we can't accept the only other alternative, and that is there is a God. And therefore they must, as Paul wrote in Romans, they must suppress the truth, and no matter how wise they think they are, the Scripture says when you know the truth but will not accept the truth, you are not wise, you are a fool. And so our psalm goes on to speak more of these atheists. And he gives, as we in the verse we just read, verse 1, he gives three descriptive qualities of these atheists. He says, they are corrupt. They are rotten on the inside. He says that they are, they do abominable, vile deeds. They are wicked on the outside. And he says that there is none who does good. None of them do right. By the way, what he isn't saying is that an atheist cannot and never does a good deed here or there. Not saying that no atheist would walk a little old lady across the street. He would trip her and push her down. He's not saying that, uh, that an atheist would never help out someone in need. Never, never do any kind thing. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that every, that every atheist somehow resembles a, a mass murderer or, uh, you know, the, the, whatever the worst of human personage is. 
What he is saying is that in an ultimate sense, no one who denies God can ultimately do anything truly right. The reason that's true is explained over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, even good works that are done without faith in God are useless. To help you understand maybe how that works, it works like this. We'll put it in terms that we understand. If a, if a husband does something that really terribly, awfully, deeply offends his wife, fill in the blank with what that is. And then he buys her flowers. He's wasting his money. If he brings her candy, he's wasting his time. If he goes out and... Uh, and plants flowers in the flower bed and does the yard work and goes in and does the dishes and, and tries to do all manners of good deeds to please his wife. Ladies, how's it going to go over? Doesn't work. Why? Because he has deeply offended you until he makes the relationship right. The good, the deeds are of no use, no value. In a similar sense, much greater, so it is with God. Nothing we can do is ultimately good before God if the relationship is broken because we have spit in God's face, as it were, and spurned God. In fact, the Scripture informs us that such a person, this, this person isn't corrupt because they're an atheist, but exactly the opposite. They are an atheist because they are corrupt. In other words, as, well, let me put it in Paul's words, because Paul, back in, in the words we read there in Romans chapter 1, he said it this way. Speaking again of this person who's denying God, says, who in their unrighteousness suppressed the truth? In other words, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The atheist or the corruption? What came first was not the atheist. What came first was the corruption. And then came the atheist. In other words, they suppress the truth about God because of their immoral living. So God is saying that primarily atheism is not driven by philosophy. Primarily atheism is driven by behavior. It is driven by, by rebellion against God and His authority driven by immorality. I seriously doubt that the 20th century uh, British biologist Julian Huxley intended to agree with Scripture when he was in a television interview and made this statement, but that's exactly what he did. What Julian Huxley said was, I suppose the reason why we leapt at the origin of the species was that the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. He was explaining why scientists latched on to the origin of the species despite the fact that scientifically there is lacking in the, in the whole concept of evolution. And his thing was we grabbed it because 
What it allowed us to do was dismiss God, which enabled us to do what we really wanted to do, which is indulge our desires and our immorality. You see, it was the philosophy was driven by the immorality, not the other way around. That's what Scripture says. That's why I titled this whole this message, God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. <laughs> Atheists are not driven by lack of belief in God. They are driven by rebellion against God. It's like the old evangelist Billy Sunday used to say, Sinners can't find God for the same reason criminals can't find policemen. (laughs) They're running the other direction. Now some of you, you hear all that and you go, yeah, that nails it. Got it, Pastor. Hey, David, good stuff. You've laid it right there. That's the way that that they are. These folks who deny God, that's it. It's foolish to be an atheist. Can't think of anything more foolish. And the whole moral perversity that that was hand in hand with that philosophy, it's repulsive. And so we join with David in his assessment here and we go, boo, boo, you atheist, you corrupt, godless and goodless atheist. Boo, yeah. But before we ride too hard on our high horse, (laughs) it's always good to finish the psalm. And what we may discover is that uh, we're not on such a high horse. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. David was talking in verse 1. Here, God takes over and God Himself assesses. He surveys humanity. God looks down at humankind to see, to observe. And when God is looking down and scoping out mankind, what is it that God looks for? When God looks at you, and when God looks at you, what is He looking to see? Two things it says there. Are there any who understand? Does anyone acknowledge and honor God for who He is? And are there any who seek after Him? Does anyone desire to know and to follow God? God surveys all of humankind. And verse 3, we get God's verdict. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God says, everyone has turned aside. That means that they've, that's Bible talk for, they've done evil. They have, together they have become corrupt. They are corrupt inside. There is none that does good. Two things to notice in God's Verdict here. The first, you have to notice the inclusiveness of it. Do you notice that language? All have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good. Did you notice how how inclusive those words are? All includes all. That includes everybody on there on the 
fourth pew. That includes everybody in the last pew. It includes grandmothers. It includes young people. It includes four-year-olds, especially four-year-olds. <laughs> it's saying that they've all turned aside and done evil. They're all corrupt and no one does good. God goes over the top to make sure that we note that He's talking about every single person without exception. And just to make sure we get it, He adds not even one exception. No one does good. Not even one. If you're sucking air, you're sinning. Wow. Second thing to notice. Did you notice that the language that's used here is the same as what he just said about the atheist? Turned aside, that means they do evil. They do wickedness on the outside. Corrupt, that means we're corrupt on the inside. And there is no one who does good. It's exactly what he said about the atheists. In other words, despite the fact that most people on planet earth are not avowed atheists, even in America, as secular as America as it is, the majority of your friends and neighbors and family believe that there's a God. Depending on the surveys you read, 75%, 80% plus of Americans believe there's a God. Despite that, every one of us at times lives like an atheist. It's true of every person on the planet, even you. See, there are times I can, if we just look back over the last week, there are times over the last week that you were not acknowledging and honoring God for who He is as sovereign Creator King. There were times over the last week that you did not Seek God to know Him and follow Him with your whole heart, with all your devotion. You ignored God and you sought your own stuff instead of Him. See, that's living like a practical atheist. We claim we believe in God, but we live as though He doesn't exist or that He's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The reality is, the psalm says we're no better than an atheist, at least some of the time. So it is, the old hymn describes us, you know it, come thou fount of every blessing. And there's a verse that says, prone to wander, Lord I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to act like atheists. So you see, this psalm God repeats this psalm to say, hey, here's what the person without God is like who denies God. And then He wants us to get the point that that includes us. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all there. Verses 4-6. through six, He issues a wake-up call. Verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? David says, are evildoers ignorant? Have they no knowledge? 
Are they just stupid or what? (laughs) They devour and eat up God's people like a meal. They don't call upon God. Verse 5, there they are in great terror. He's looking down the you know, a little ways down the road, he says, there they are in great terror. There's a day coming. They're in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. See, what he's saying is, evildoers, be afraid. Be very afraid. There they are. There's a day of terror coming. There's a day of judgment, a day of reckoning before God. And there they're going to account for what they've done. And they ought to be very, very afraid. Because God, He says, is with the righteous. And He's not with the wicked, the evildoer. God is with the poor, the weak. He's the refuge for that person. God is going to exact a price for your sin. David is saying, don't the bad guys get it? Why do they continue down the path they're on? It's obvious there is a God and He will dispense justice. And so he gives a wake-up call to evildoers. And when we read that, and as I think the, the ancient Hebrews would read this, they would begin to cheer. The bad guys are going to get it. And... We cheer. The bad guys are going to get it. See, God has built into you and me a knowledge of right and wrong and a longing in our heart for justice. And that's why most of us love the old movies where the bad guys get it. We even love the vengeance movies where you get it. I remember the old you know, Clint Eastwood, hang them high. You know. He pulls back the scarf as he's got the bad guy who tried to lynch him once. He's got him and he says, before you hang a man, you ought to look at him real good. (laughs) Yeah! Yeah! The bad guy got it! Don't we love that stuff? See, we long to see the rapist and the murderer and the terrorist get what they deserve. Get what's coming to them. Brought to justice. The person who stole our kid's bike or that swindled our grandmother out of her savings or that stole our parents' identity. We we, we want such a person to pay for their crimes. David says in essence, The bad guys ought to be quaking their boots because there's a day coming when they're going to pay for their crimes. So that we cheer about. We go, that's good. But if we string together what we've said so far, we it really ought to raise at least two big questions in our mind. Because if we take this and we pair it with what we read back up there in the verse where he says that we've all done wrong and do wrong and we're wrong internally and we're wrong externally and none of us does good. And we realize that over here it says that God is going to punish the evildoers And he says the evildoers are going to get it. And we realize that 
Verse 2 put us as evil doers. And if he's saying that if you're an evildoer, you ought to be really afraid there's a day of terror, of reckoning and judgment coming, it ought to make us ask the question, should I be afraid? And the answer is yes. Be very afraid if you're over here in the camp of the evildoer. There's a second question that ought to come up as we read this verse carefully. Because if you go back again and you read, look what he says in verse 5. They are in great terror over here in the camp of the evildoer. For God is with the generation of the righteous. And that ought to make you ask a question. Wait a minute. Who are the righteous? Because what he said in the verse before is everybody's over here in the camp of the evildoer. We're on team evil. Every one of us, didn't he say that? There is no one right, not even one. Over there are the righteous and God is with them. But we're all over here. Who's over there? And how did they get there? Isn't that a great question? See, again, the the people, as David is writing this, I think the Hebrews and the Jews, they would tend to read this and they would read, there's team evil over here and they ought to be very afraid there's a day of terror coming because God is with the righteous and they're saying, here we are. We're over here in the righteous because we are Israel. We are God's chosen people. We're the Jews. They're the evildoers. We're good. But they missed the point of the psalm, which is why God put this in here twice. The Apostle Paul quotes this psalm in Romans chapter 3 to make it crystal clear what God was trying to say. Look at what he writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jews are over here with all the evildoers on team evil. As it is written, now he quotes the psalm, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's our psalm. So again comes the question, how does someone move from over here to over there? Because God says there are people over here and He is with them and He's against them. So how do you get from here to there? The million dollar question. The answer is in the text. 
always is. Look back at verse 4 again. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up My people as they eat bread? Don't they have any understanding? All these evil folks who, to whom sinning comes so naturally, it's like a meal. Don't miss the next line. And they do not call upon the Lord. Sin may come as naturally to us as a meal, but there is rescue from sin and there's rescue from its curse. And it comes not by keeping rules because none of us can do it enough. It comes not by getting you know, a member card. I'm in the nation of Israel. It comes not by getting a member card. I'm a member of the chapel of the lake. The answer is right here. It's by calling upon the Lord in desperation and faith saying, Lord, save. Go back to Romans chapter 3 after the Apostle Paul is making the point that all of us are under sin. We're under curse because we have violated God's laws. None of us does good. No, not one. He's quoted Psalm 14 here and in Romans chapter 3. A little bit later, a few verses later, he says this and he explains again what we've just seen back here in Psalm 14. Where is their rescue? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23, verse 24. But they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, there's nothing that you and I could do to get ourselves off of team evil, out of the evildoers and into the company of the righteous. But if we call upon the name of the Lord, He will rescue us. That's why God put this psalm in the Old Testament twice. He wanted everybody to understand that apart that, that they are lost, that there is no one good, no one righteous, and that the only hope of rescue is to call upon the name of the Lord. And His, His invitation to you today is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. God so loved the world he gave His one and only Son. God became man to die on the cross to bear the penalty of your sin and my sin. What we deserve because we're on team evil, He took upon Himself. And all those who will place their faith and trust in Him, the Bible says He transfers us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves, out of team evil and into the team righteous. That's His invitation to you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, God wants you to know you can do that right now where you are. You just say, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm separated from You. I'm lost. And I hear You died for me. Jesus died for me. I trust Him. I, want, I believe Him as my Savior. The Bible says, those who call upon Him, He will not turn away. You will be saved. He ends verse 7 with a prayer. David is praying for that salvation to come for Israel. You see, from the very, when sin first entered into the world, God sent a promise that there would be one who would come, the seed of a woman who would be 
a rescuer, a savior. And through the Old Testament, it continued to be unfolded a little more, a little more about this coming one who would be the savior. And David, David understands that there's a savior, there's a rescue coming, and it's coming out of Zion. And he's coming for, to bring salvation. He's coming to bring restoration in relationship with God and restoration as God's people. And there will be blessing and there will be rejoicing. Eternal blessings. David prays for that to come. Now, we know now looking back on what David had written and, and a thousand years later as Jesus came, we realized that Jesus was the answer to David's prayer and Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. We realized that Jesus has come as Savior and that Jesus is coming back one day as the King who will bring in restoration and eternal blessing to His people. With the confidence of that promise, three takeaways for us this morning. Actually, before those three takeaways, first, if you're not a, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus, again, the invitation to you today, trust in Him. For all of us who are believers in Christ, three things to take away from this text. The first is this, never despair when you look around at the world around us and you see all the evil and everything around. Please don't despair. Christ is in control. He's already won the victory. It hasn't been realized on earth yet, but it will be. Secondly, we should never slip into the foolishness of living as practical atheists. Even though there is such a bent, such a, as, as the hymn said, such a proneness in us to do that. To move back into living as those who simply ignore God. Believer in Christ, what a, what a foolish thing. What a wasteful thing. Instead, let us worship Him as our Creator and Sovereign Lord. And let us seek to know Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is what, that is what Paul later writes. That is what he presses on. He desires that I may know Him. Thirdly, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, David ends this with just a rejoicing, with this, with this word of joy and rejoicing. Let the people rejoice. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be the happiest person on the planet. We know where we're going. We have a home in heaven. We have an eternal destiny. So be joyful people. Smile, laugh, <laughs> rejoice. That's in there. Father, this is good news. Good stuff. We needed to hear this today. Some folks just needed to hear this and be reminded we have reason to rejoice and be glad. Some folks needed to hear this perhaps because they've never understood and heard that they're a sinner and they desperately need a Savior. Some folks here maybe needed to hear this because they need to be reminded that they've been living not as a child of God, though they are one who has placed their faith and trust in Christ, but they've been living, practically speaking, as an atheist. 
Lord, in all those things, we ask that You would change us. Lord, as we come to You, draw us near. Deepen our love for You and our devotion to You. May we join along with Paul and may it be our heart desire that we may know You more. In Jesus' name, for His glory, we ask these things. Amen.